Father God, we pray that you would uh, give us understanding. Father, we know if we are to know anything, we need to know who you are. We also need to know who we are. And so we pray that as we study your word this weekend, you would deepen our understanding of of both ourselves and yourself, that we might uh, we might live well, that we might love you, and we might treat others as we should. Amen. Who am I? I haven't had an amnesiac moment. I'm not that old. I haven't had a senior moment this morning. Who am I? It is the most fundamental question there is. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights answers it in this way. All humans are born free and equal in dignity and right. They're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. The irony of those words this morning, after last night's events in Paris, ought to be pretty stinging. They are great words, but the problem with them is that there is no explanation given. There is no because. It's an axiom, and an axiom is an unexplained, basic assumption that everybody agrees with. The, The problem with axioms is that they only work if everybody agrees with them. And not everybody agrees with the value of human life. And it's not just deranged terrorists in Paris. Sophisticated philosophers in London, uh, John Gray, Darwin showed that humans are like other animals. Human life has no more meaning than the life of swamp mould. Ditto uh, Peter Singer in the States. Or the Council of the RSPCA, which has consistently for the last few years said it is speciesism that we have human rights. In other words, it is irrational and unjustifiable to give humans all these rights that we deny to cats and cockroaches and chimpanzees. Okay, well, forget the philosophers and the RSPCA. What about scientists? Science is our highest authority in this culture. What do we get when we look to to scientists? You you may know earlier this year they found an ancient human ancestor, they think, in caves in South Africa. Uh, Paleontologist Franz de Waal wrote in the New York Times about this discovery. It is an odd coincidence that the name given to these hominids, Naledi, is an anagram of denial. We are trying way too hard to deny that we are modified apes. The discovery of these fossils is a major paleontological breakthrough. Why not seize the moment to overcome our anthropocentrism and recognise the fuzziness of the distinction within our extended family? In some ways he's right. We do share 95% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So why give us special rights over chimpanzees? But then again, you share 50% of your DNA with a banana, so the playing the numbers game, <laughs> you know, playing the numbers game is not quite as uh, useful as it as it could be. Um, turn to the eminent biologist Fra- uh, Francis Crick, um, awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery of DNA, and he has an even more bleak take on things from a scientific point of view. He says, "You, your joys and your sorrow, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will." are in fact no more than a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated parts. He's an old romantic. (laughs) And you'll see actually on the front cover, there's a whole load of it in tiny, tiny fonts. Uh, There are 54 elements that comprise the human body. 54 elements, give or take. The cost today on the open market, there's been a a bit of a dip in the commodities market, some some here will tell you, Uh, it's about £1,224 to pay for the raw material that comprises you. 
we insure an average human being for around £100,000. So how do you account for the 99 grand gap between what we are physically, biologically, chemically, and the value we place upon ourselves? How do you account for that gap? Science alone cannot, does not tell us what it means to be human. But this isn't just a question of theoretical interest. When you step out of the laboratory and into the real world, you find that your view of humanity is incredibly important. It has been devastating in history when people have had a low view of humanity. Uh, So the, the African slave trade was partly grounded in and was able to continue for so long because of a crude view that Africans were sort of like apes so we can treat them like we want. By contrast... Auschwitz and the Holocaust was grounded not in a crude but a very sophisticated view of modern eugenics. The latest science shows us that Aryans are genetically more advanced and therefore we can treat the undimensioned less than human people as less than human people. The Rwandan genocide in 1994 that uh, Daniel and Asnat lived through. Well, how did it come about? Well, for years beforehand, the radio station RTLMC pumped out propaganda to dehumanize the Tutsis deliberately, systematically. Most commonly, Tutsis are cockroaches. And what do you do to cockroaches? It's how you prepare people for a genocide. It is not enough to say with the United Nations, most people seem to agree. It's not enough. We need something stronger, something more robust, so that we have a a reason to stop things like that happening, a reason to say, uh, no matter where people are from, no matter what they look like, no matter what colour their skin, we are humans and we have inalienable, untouchable rights that mean we cannot treat one another like this. How we view humanity really, really matters. This is a very important question. It's also an important question for a slightly more psychological reason. Theologian Emil Brunner says that the most powerful of all spiritual forces is a man's view of himself. And I guess that, I mean, that should be obvious, that that how I understand myself, who I think I am, has almost more impact than anything else on the way that I live my life. And when we turn to the Bible, we'll find a solid basis for human rights and the strongest foundation on which to build self-image. We're going to go back to Genesis 1 to 2. Uh, Two things. Firstly, this is a topical series of talks. So we're not really going to be uh, digging our our way into and working our way through a passage as we usually do at church. Instead, we're we're picking bits and pieces from all over the Bible. Um, We don't want to do that all the time because basically I could just choose what I like in one sense. But uh, to to get an overview of everything the Bible says, it's the only way to do it. Um, So it's all right every now and then, I think, to do this, to to have a sort of topical thing. The second thing to say is we're not going to get into the whole science and creation thing. If you're really that excited about it or that, um, you know, it's that big a deal for you, I can recommend some serious books. Go away and read them. But I'm not going to be able to say anything in 10 minutes that's going to be useful. Uh, So we're not going to get into all of those debates. Uh, But there are very good answers from qualified scientists. So do come and chat to me and I can recommend you some serious reading. Right. Three points. We are created. We are created. It is so obvious that you can almost miss this in Genesis 1 and 2. Human beings, like you and me, are created. We are creatures. We created uh, Genesis 2-7 with body, soul and spirit. 
We are not gods, we're creatures. It's explicit in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And that means that you and I have an owner. God has rights over us. And we recognise this in all sorts of areas. The stuff I own, I have rights over. So um, if Adam decides that my car isn't quite brattling enough for him and his street tastes and decides that during the course of the weekend he's going to lower the suspension uh, put some go faster stripes down the side some fluorescent lighting underneath and uh, black out the windows he's not he's not allowed to do that that might be his sort of taste (laughs) for how he spends his saturday nights roaring up and down the strip south end on sea but it's not how i choose to spend my saturday nights and it's my car adam <laughs> so get your fingers off it because so, it's mine now vertically you and i own nothing all that you and i have is a gift we are created by god 1 corinthians 4 everything that you have is a gift so why then do you take pride as if you've done it you own it and that includes our very bodies Horizontally, we do own stuff, but vertically, God owns everything. And not only the stuff that we have, but the bodies that we live in are his. Actually, if you're a Christian, you're twice owned. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says of our redemption, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. You and I are created, we're not God's, we're created and therefore owned by God. Secondly, we are crowned. Now, what do I mean by that, to say we're crowned? Well, like the rest of the living things, we're created by God. But it's obvious, as we heard the account read, that something changes when you get to humanity. We're not just quantitatively different from the other creatures, a little less hair, a little more brain. Uh, We are qualitatively different. We're a different kind of thing. Uh, The pattern changed. Uh, So Genesis 1-3 to to verse 25, there's been this consistent rhythm and repetition and pattern. But at verse 26, the pace slows and the language changes. Uh, look at, uh, we'll start at verse 24 just to see it. So we're in the sixth day. Then, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Other stuff is made with this slightly impersonal formula, let there be, let the water team, let the land produce. But with humanity, God says, let us make mankind. It's as if God leans in at this moment and and gets much more intimately involved in what is happening. 
other creatures are also made according to this formula, according to their kinds. You see verse 11, uh, verse 12, verse 21, verse 24, verse 25, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. But with mankind, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And so when I say we're crowned, what I mean is there is something different about us that's tied up in this phrase, in the image of God, he created them, or in the likeness of God, verse 26. What does it mean? It it has generated a vast number of theories. But what it seems to boil down to, I'll give you the answer. Um, What it seems to boil down to is that to, to be made in the image of God is to reflect God and to represent God. To reflect and to represent God. Now, obviously, there are a whole host of ways in which you and I are not like God. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but uh, so far this morning, I have not created any universes out of nothing. The day is young, must be said, and I haven't yet had much coffee, but I'm pretty confident I won't between now and the end of today either. I'm not God. I'm not going to live forever. I'm not present everywhere. I don't know everything. There are huge differences between you and me and God, but at the same time, there is a sense in which we do reflect God. He is sound and we are echo. Now, people have argued for centuries, okay, which aspect of us reflects God? Which aspect of us bears his image? I think, actually, it's very important that we're not told which of our faculties, as if it Uh, our soul or our body or our intellect or our creativity or our morality because if we could isolate one area and say it is this part of humanity that reflects God well then we could look at people and say that person reflects God more than that person you see if it's our physical bodies that reflect the image of God primarily if that's what it's talking about well then you'd have to say well disabled people they don't reflect God quite as well as able-bodied people as Olympic athletes If it's our IQ, then you could say clever people reflect God more than people who are not so intellectually gifted. Instead, we're not told which aspect of us reflects the image of God. And that means no matter what people's abilities or appearance, I have to say they're a human and therefore they reflect God as much as I reflect God. It's very, very important we're not told which particular aspect of us. All of us regardless of our attributes and abilities, reflect God. We reflect and we also represent him. And and the two things are related, as we'll see in a moment. Bearing God's image relates, it seems, to ruling the world. You see that uh, both times in chapter 1 that the image of God is mentioned. It then goes on to a command to to rule over the world. So uh, 126, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish. 27, God created mankind in his own image. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the world. In other words, to reflecting God, being made in his image, qualifies us to rule, to represent him in his world. So in ancient times, um, emperors would set up statues, images of themselves in far-off lands. Uh, so if you're, if you're the emperor of London, then uh, Emperor David Cameron would have a, a stonemason chisel out a, an idealised <coughs> statue of himself with his wobbly chin, and it would be set up in Huddersfield, so the minions in far-off Huddersfield would know that they are ruled by the great Emperor Cameron from <coughs> London, 
and it would represent his rule in that place. And it's like that with us. I'm going to teach you a new word. Um, most of us have heard of the word vice-regent. A vice-gerent is somebody who rules not in the absence of the, the king or the emperor, but one who rules in the presence of the majesty. And we're like that. We're vice-gerents. So God isn't absent, but we are physically, we physically bear his image to be his physical representatives, to rule on the earth for him. We're his vice-gerents. So bearing God's image means we reflect him. You and I are like God in some ways. And because of that, we represent him. We rule his world for him. Okay, sounds great. But doesn't that all change with the fall? Doesn't it get sort of wiped out of the fall? Well, yes and no. So Colossians 3.10 says of Christians, uh, we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. So there is a sense in which our image of God needs to be renewed once we've been, once we've fallen through Adam and Eve. So it's not as it should be. It's marred. It's scratched. It's corrupted. It's cracked. But it's not completely wiped out. So after the fall, after even the flood, God says this to, to Noah in chapter nine, verse six of Genesis. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. James 3.9 says something similar. So Jim Packer, the theologian, comments, we still bear the image of God formally. <coughs> and so the unique dignity of each human must still be recognized and respected as a gesture of honor to the maker. We're created. We're not gods. We're crowned. We're not like the rest of the animals. We're also gendered. Now, it is interesting how very little we're told. Genesis 1 and 2, that is it. All of creation dealt with there. You think, you know what, I've got a lot of questions, and you've only got two chapters, really. God doesn't tell us a whole lot. So when he does tell us stuff, it tends to be pretty important in those chapters. And one detail that is emphasised clearly is that humanity is created with two genders, male and female. And it's emphasised both in the broad brush of Genesis 1 and in the Zoom focus on humanity that you get in chapter 2. Look with me, Uh, Genesis chapter 1, firstly, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, And then chapter 2, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, this is not incidental. There have been pairings throughout chapter 1 in creation. So there's been heavens and the earth. There's been light and dark. There's been land and water. And now you get at the end male and female. Male and female is one of the fundamental distinctions or pairings or contrasts that God has built into the created order. And so biblically, sex, gender is deeper than what I identify with as if I can choose or change it. It is a fundamental distinction built into the fabric of our creation. It's a given, not a chosen thing. Three very important little things. Male and female equally in the image of God. Equally in the image of God, chapter one. Secondly, not half and half in the image of God, as if only a married couple 
fully bear the image of God. No, male and female both fully bear the image of God. Thirdly, Genesis 1 and 2 teach complementary truths about men and women. And it's very, 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 very important that Genesis 1 comes first. Absolute equality of status. Men and women, man and woman, fully bear, equally bear the image of God. There is no difference between a man and a woman in the eyes of God. Genesis 2, God has assigned different roles to these equal image bearers. Now that's a concept our culture just cannot get its head around because we find our value in our roles. It's not the case in Genesis 1 and 2. And importantly, it's not the case in God himself. In the Trinity, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, fully God. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. Father, Son and God and Spirit, fully equal, fully God. And yet, you always read of the Son submitting to the Father. Throughout John's Gospel, especially John 5, John 8, the, the, the Son submits to the Father, the Son obeys the Father, and the Son delights to do the work the Father has given. So John 4.34, my food is to do the will of my Father, Jesus says. You never, ever once read of the Father being sent by the Son or of the Father obeying the Son. And yet, fully equal in dignity, fully equal in divinity. The Bible completely divorces my value, my my individual worth from my role, what I do. And we see that in the Trinity. It is not demeaning to God the Son. It's not beneath Jesus to obey his Father. And that ought to impact enormously our starting point when we when we work out uh, what the Bible says about uh, roles of men and women in marriage and in church. Got to work out what the Bible teaches about it, but the background is that in the Trinity you see Father, Son and Holy Spirit, different roles and yet fully equal God, not demeaning and yet obeying. In the light of modern debates, note too that marriage is built in Genesis on a combination of differences. Marriage is not built on sameness, but on difference. Man and woman are different. And that is the grounding of, of marriage. It's that pairing of, of contrast. I imagine there'll be uh, all manner of questions arise as we go through. this. Uh, the, uh, who we are, humanity touches on a huge number of things. And I'm, uh, I'm basically going to, to run across the surface of the skin, picking off scabs as I go. Um, and all these sort of, why did you stop? Um, we'll have plenty of time for questions. Um, my aim is not to, not to provoke, but you just can't cover the ground without moving quickly. And I can't deal with things properly as I do that. Um, so please do write the questions and there's plenty of time over the, the weekend either to chat to me individually or to, uh, to raise questions. You've got question slips in your sheets and hopefully we'll be able to cover those things. Um, <coughs> two big implications. We are not gods. We cannot redefine ourselves and we are not dogs. We have inherent value. Firstly, we're not gods. You have noticed... I suspect that not everybody these days accepts the Genesis accounts as being true history. Um, there are those out there, I hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you, who think that modern science is incompatible with the Bible. I'm sorry to drop that bombshell on you if that's news. Um, but what's interesting 
is that it's, is the way this debate's conducted. It's not just a, well, I'm not convinced that modern science actually matches this. It is, there's a level of heat and passion in this debate. It is an angry debate. It is a vociferous debate. Why is that? Why is there so much heat in this particular debate? I think the passion, the reason people care so strongly and get so adamant is because if Genesis is right, well then I am created. And if I'm created, I'm owned. And if I'm owned, then I do not have the right to define myself. I am not free to make up my own rules and to determine my own agenda or my own gender. Genesis makes it clear. You and I are not gods. There is a God, and therefore we have an authority. The God who speaks has spoken clearly, and we are to submit to him. We cannot redefine ourselves. We cannot make up our own rules. Our creator is our king. Secondly, though, we are not dogs. We have an inherent value. Even before we get to redemption and what God paid to redeem you and me in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, even before you get to that, just in creation, see the wonderful dignity and value each and every human being has, not just as a creature, but as a human, bearing the image of God. Now that is a huge relief, because there is a universal search for significance. And here is an answer that provides real ballast for your soul. You do not have to create your own value. You do not have to justify your existence or make something of yourself. You matter just by existing. Two rather different films. Rocky, uh, when he's asked, why do you get yourself beaten to a pulp? Why do you do that? Why would you, why would you allow that to happen to yourself? His answer is, so I know I'm not a bum. If he can, if he can win, if he can survive in the ring, he knows he's not a bum. Likewise, um, Chariots of Fire, Harold Abraham says it in, in slightly more refined way, but exactly the same thing. I have ten seconds to justify my existence. But the image of God is not something you have to earn or achieve or that you can lose. You and I do not have to earn our value or prove our worth. You matter. You are valuable because you bear the image of God. Now, there are huge implications, obviously, for our self-worth and the way that we ground our identity. But it has massive implications, firstly, for how we think of others. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful essay, The Weight of Glory, writes, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, those are mortal and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. So you and I need to look around, not just this room, but the tube carriage on Monday morning and treat others there, not as obstacles to be barged out of the way, or tools to be used to get what we want, but as humans to be valued and honoured, because in them we see the image of God and every human being you have ever encountered has reflected the glory of God. Gosh, doesn't that change the way we ought to think about 
people we bump into, people who wind us up, people who annoy us, anger us, disappoint us, frustrate us. Now that also has enormous implications for how we should think about start of life and end of life issues. As I said, again, I'm afraid I'm just going to have to go by ripping off the scab. There's not the time to deal properly with abortion and euthanasia. But what I do want to say is how to work out your position. Now, we've stopped, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've stopped talking about the value of life as a culture. Instead, we talk about, have you noticed, not the value of life, but quality of life. Now, that is a very profound change. You see, value of life is an objective assessment of what humans are. Quality of life is a subjective judgment of whether somebody's existence is good enough. That is a hugely dangerous shift because who gets to decide when a life has enough quality? Who gets to make that call? You see it, I think, um, perhaps most obviously with um, Down syndrome. It's one of the, you combine walking a dog and being a vicar and people tell you everything. Uh, and uh, I've had a couple of conversations I had a conversation with somebody I literally just met and they said they'd just had a scan been told that they're on um, that there's a, a risk of um, Down syndrome and she said both doctors just said you've got to abort you've got to abort and uh, as we chatted it was interesting their, their reason was very simple they said you've got to think about the quality of life and yet now you've got to be careful statistics are um, lies, damn lies and statistics You know, people play all sorts of silly games with stats but, uh, but almost every statistical survey I've looked at people with Down syndrome rate their quality of life actually higher than most of the rest of the population they're happier with their life than most people so what gives me the right to say get rid of it doesn't have enough quality of life when see quality of life is a dangerous game to play When we are thinking about abortion and euthanasia and those sorts of things, whatever position you come to, if you come to the position it's all right to take a human life, then you've got to have something enormously heavy to put in that side of the scales if it is to outweigh the inherent value of a human made in the image of God. That's all I'm saying. Make sure that you've got something heavy enough that it can outweigh this is a human made in the image of God. Uh, again, it's, if you want to discuss that, um, please do. But that surely has to be our starting point. Humans are made in the image of God. I can't take a life unless I really have something heavy enough to outweigh that. Jesus says these wonderful words in Matthew 6. This is how we ground our our value, our self-worth. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they. Or again, Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You are not a naked ape. You are not a sack of cells. You are a human. You are created in the image of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Your value is not dependent on your achievements or your status in the world. Your value is not dependent on the view of others or on your own sense of self-worth. You are not your job title. You are not your sexuality. You are not your accent or your academic track record or your IQ or your dress size. Your identity, your value is grounded in this. You are made in the image of God and you bear his glory. You bear his image whether you believe in him or not. You bear his image when you sin as well as when you obey him. You bear his image. Married people do not bear his image more than singles. Adults do not bear his image more than babies. Old people with dementia and those with profound physical disabilities bear his image as much as Nobel scientists and Olympic champions. Black and white, old and young, male and female, you bear his image. You are not an accident. Your life is not trivial or pointless. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by God in his image. And in you, we see something of God's glory. Praise him and love each other. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you that we bear your image. Father, we pray that you would grant us humility. We are created beings, not gods. Help us, therefore, to humbly submit to you and listen to your rules for life. And Father, we praise you that we are not just other creatures, that we somehow bear your image and reflect your glory. Father, help us to uh, to set ourselves free from the... Um, from the enslaving, crushing burdens that we put upon ourselves to, to prove ourselves, to matter, to, uh, to become someone. Help us instead to revel in the givenness of our status as image bearers of God. Help us too to love and value and treat with respect every other human that we meet, for in them we see you, we see your glory reflected. <coughs> Help us, we pray, to treat others in a way which fits that high calling. Amen. Amen.